couple of weeks ago when we were done here, you know that uh, a lot of times after the, the service is over, I'll kind of like wander around and meet with people or shake people's hand and let people know we're happy that they were here or pray for somebody if that, but just, you know, just kind of walk around and see what's up. And uh, so as we were, as I was stopping and talking to different people, it seemed that like there was just this overwhelming sense of people who were asking for prayer for healing of one type or another. And uh, it happened a lot. And so uh, when I was done, Lorraine and I were talking and she had the same experience. And then, um, so we said, well, one of these days we have to just have a, a prayer service. We had to have a prayer, for, prayer service for people who need healing. Um, it's probably something we should even do on a regular basis. And so, um, so as we talked about that, that thought got into Lorraine's head. And then from Lorraine's head, it kind of moved into the prayer team. And then it just went off the charts. It just, it, it, you know, it just got crazy at that point. But what we want to do here, this, what I want to do this morning, uh, and I trust that we're moving in the spirit, is to uh, have kind of a combination service in which we will receive communion together. And then in the context of that um, atmosphere that communion is supposed to generate, okay? Communion is supposed to put us in a certain place, right? It's, it's important that we take it very seriously and earnestly come before the Lord, that it's, a, that it's a time to really do some real introspection and some reflection and all of that. And so with that in mind, we're going to receive communion this morning, um, but we're going to um, take time to pray for people who need healing this morning. It could be you or you could be, you could be prayed for for somebody else that, uh, that you may know, but... Um, that's what's, that's what's going to happen here today. Now, this is our normal Sunday for doing communion. And, uh, but it's important that that never becomes kind of perfunctory or it doesn't, doesn't devolve into something that we just, yeah, we do that. It's, 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 it's vital in every aspect of our Christian life and with our walk with the Lord that we don't just let it degenerate into something commonplace or regular or mechanical or routine or something like that. Because... Uh, there's, a, there's a, an environment here in which the Lord's presence can be manifested in an un, unusual fashion. I was listening to somebody preach last night who was talking about the difference between omnipresence and the manifest presence, okay? God is omnipresent. We all agree on that, right? No matter where you go, David in Psalm 139 says, Lord, where can I go and flee from your presence? If I go to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, you're there. If I take the wings and fly to the farthest place of the earth and some island somewhere, even there, you are. There's just no way I am getting away from you. There's no place that you are not. So that's God's omnipresence. He is in all places at all times. However, there is also the Lord's manifest presence. There are times when the Lord is just in that mix in an unusual way, and, and he's there to perform certain things that he wants to do, to do certain things that he wants to do. So we're just kind of opening up this service here this morning to the presence of the Lord, to let him, to invite him in and ask for him to come and uh, bring healing for those who need healing. So that's kind of what's on our, um, on my agenda here today for us, and so um, Getting back to the communion, it's important that we don't just, that it isn't um, done lightly, but it, it's done with, um, with intentionality. Scripture warns against being careless about communion. Uh, tells us that it's a special time for self-examination. Let a man examine himself, <clears throat> um, and a woman, for that matter, too. 
um, it is a time to come before the Lord and, and think earnestly about our lives and, and even more so to think earnestly about what he has done on our behalf and particularly to think about what Christ has done on our behalf and what blessings and benefits that confers to us because what Jesus did has changed everything, right? What Jesus did on the cross has radically changed everything about our lives and has brought us into an entirely new status where we are standing before God and living in his favor. An amazing reality, walking in grace. The word grace means favor. So the Apostle Paul, when he was writing to the people of, uh, of Corinth, challenged them on the basis of their not taking um, quite seriously enough the, uh, the time of communion. He said, you guys are making a party out of this thing. We got people that don't have enough to eat. We got other people that are getting drunk. This is, you're missing the point on this thing. And so he, uh, he challenged them to, uh, to use the communion time as a time to actually recall and to reflect and to think about what Christ has done. And then in that, that's, and, and I'm hoping that that will bring us into an environment this morning um, where we will, where, where we will extend a prayer for healing to anyone who happens to be here who needs it and trust that God's presence will be here to, uh, to bless our, our time and bless our efforts. So, so our focus is, uh, this morning is on what Jesus did for us and how and why it matters. I normally open up the communion service by um, quoting that passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where he says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered unto you, that on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, and after he had given thanks, you know that whole thing. And, uh, and no doubt we'll say the same thing um, later. But this morning, I'd like to go or look to a verse of Scripture that's going to take us just a little bit deeper into this idea of what it is that the Lord did on our behalf so that we will really get some time to consider what Jesus did, what the covenant is that we now have with him, and what benefits it confers on those of us who believe it. So um, to see this with the, with the greatest clarity, I, I want to take us back to a place in Scripture um, and look at a, a truly amazing a truly amazing, astonishing passage of Scripture um, written by the prophet Isaiah hundreds of years, centuries before Jesus ever walked the earth, okay? And it's going to take us back. And this, this passage of Scripture is really uh, somewhat of an enigma. It is a mystery. It is particularly a mystery to the Jewish people because there is no context in which they, they do not have an answer for the context of the person. It's an extremely strong statement, and yet they do not have anyone who fulfills it or someone who they, that can be pointed to, um, to, who, to uh, about whom this passage is written. So we're going to go to Isaiah chapter 53 this morning, and uh, I want to bring you or bring us all into that, uh, into that famous passage of Scripture where we read what Christ was going to do 700 years before he actually came to do it. So, um, unfortunately for the Jewish people, the only context for this passage is the Lord Jesus. I doubt there'll be anybody in this room here this morning that does not instantly recognize that this, is, this can only be about Jesus. This is so exact and so such a perfect explanation and description of what it is that the Lord did on the cross that there's no other place, and that's why it remains a riddle. It remains an enigma for the Jewish people because there's nobody that they can point to that actually fulfills this thing. So here's the passage 
in question this morning. This comes from Isaiah chapter 53. If you've got your Bible and you want to follow along, good. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. And I want you to keep that phrase in your, in your head this morning. Whoops. By his stripes we are healed. <clears throat> the, the passage concludes, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, <coughs> excuse me, everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, I doubt there's anybody who, in hearing that passage and going through that word, um, has any doubt as to who is being referred to here. It is about as obvious and as plain a reference to Jesus and to his work on the cross and to the offering of himself as a sacrifice as it could possibly be. And it's easy and it's obvious for us <clears throat> And it was obvious for the writers of the New Testament. They brought this passage into the New Testament. I want to take a, a, call, a, take a few moments this morning to just focus and emphasize that, um, that statement that is made at the end of uh, verse 5. By his stripes, we are healed. By his stripes, we are healed. Now, the statement summarizes, I think you could kind of say it, it underscores or it defines um, all that has preceded it, all that it gathers it all together. It answers the question, why? Why did this have to happen? Why, did, why, why was he wounded? Why was he bruised? Why was the punishment for our peace or the chastisement for our peace, why did it fall upon him? Um, all of this happened for, for the, the summary statement, and by his stripes, we are healed. As God looked over the world, the broken world, the fall, I was listening to a preacher the other day, and uh, he was talking about brokenheartedness and broken people. And it's a term that gets a lot of use these days. You get a lot of mileage out of that term. We're all broken and all of that. So he said there was a newspaper that had called, uh, was wanting to do a, a story about brokenhearted people and brokenheartedness. And so they called around, this was in Memphis, they called around a bunch of churches and asked the pastors if they could put them in touch with some people who had been some, through some serious difficulties, through some, you know, heartaches and real heartbreaking situations. And so the pastors, you know, thought and contacted different members of their congregation and kind of with permission sent their names along. And one of the pastors decided to do something that he felt would, would um, more perfectly underscore um, his response to all of this. And so he took a phone book. Do you remember phone books? 
right? And he took this phone book of everybody who lives in the Memphis area, and he wrapped it all up, and he sent it along to the, uh, the reporter at the newspaper, a way of saying everybody in this world. You don't get through this world without getting your heart broken once or twice or three times or without being broken yourself in some way. There's a good way to be broken and a bad way to be broken, right? The good way to be broken is to fall upon the rock, the Lord Jesus Christ, right? He says, anybody that falls upon me will be broken, but if I fall upon you, you will be destroyed. And so there's a, there's a way to be broken. And in other words, our will, our that whole sense of independence and self-absorption, self, um, that has to be broken out of our lives. And we have to, like, like, just like an animal, actually the, uh, the word that is used in Scripture that refers to that is the word meek. We often think that meek means weak. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. But it, meek does not mean weak at all. Meek is actually the, the Greek word praus, and it has to do with... Um, it was used to describe an animal that was now available for service. You ever see those giant plow horses and different animals that uh, then are kind of broke? They're broken. They're, they, they are able then to serve. And so the word meek actually means to be tamed. It means power under control. And so, so anyway, um, we, all, we all have experienced our own aspect of brokenness. But the end of that statement, it says... Um, by his stripes, we are healed. That God has seen the brokenness that is the reality of so many human lives and has moved and gone through all of that passage. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and by his stripes, we are healed. All of that was done to affect this healing that is being described for us in Isaiah chapter 53. Would you agree? Could you say amen? amen? Nod your head or something, right? So all of this is kind of for that particular reason. Now, how is it then that we are to understand this idea of healing as it's being presented there? Is it a metaphor? Is it to be understood symbolically? Is it to be understood literally? Well, let's go uh, um, take a look at the, how the New Testament writers used this same passage of Scripture because they brought it forward. They, they, took, they took it from the Old Testament and imported it into the New Testament. And there are a couple of different places, we'll see if we actually get to them this morning, where it is being used. One of the most notable places is in Matthew chapter 8. Now in Matthew chapter 8, here's, this is an important thing. Matthew chapter 8 comes immediately after Matthew chapter 7. How many say amen to that? All right? I know this because... I study the Bible. Now, what's, what's the big deal about that? Well, Matthew chapter 7 is the concluding chapter of the Sermon on the Mount, which begins in 5.1 and ends at the end of 7. I forget what the last verse in chapter 7 is. And the Sermon on the Mount is kind of the basic sermon or the basic message that teaches us what the difference is between Old Testament Judaism and New Testament Christianity. Okay, it is, you might, you might consider it, or uh, if, you, if you read through it, you'll find that it's an upgrade. Jesus says things over and over again, like, you have heard that it was said by those of old time, that you shall love your neighbor, love your friend, and hate your enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the children 
of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun to rise on the evil and on the good, sends forth rain on the unjust on the just and on the unjust. Be therefore perfect as you, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. And the whole idea is, in the Old Testament, it would have been perfectly fine to hate your enemies, okay? It would have been perfectly fine. As a matter of fact, the, the basic standard for the Old Testament was eye for eye, tooth for tooth. In other words, you can't do more to them, but whatever they did to you, you can do it to them, right? That was kind of the basis for that Old Testament covenant. But in the New Testament, everything becomes radically upgraded, and the problem of sin, the problem of brokenness goes much deeper than just external things that we might do. It goes to the very thoughts and intents of the heart. That's what Christ is after, to be able to get to the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, because that's where life is really being lived. That's where the game is really being played. And so um, so Matthew, so let me get back to the, uh, to the context there. So the the sermon ends, and it, it, the Sermon on the Mount ends in chapter 7 with Jesus saying, um, anybody who hears these words of mine, I'll tell you what he's like. He's like a wise man that built his house upon a rock. He dug down deep and found the bedrock, and he laid the foundation, and the floods came, and the rains came, and the winds came, but that house stood because it was grounded. It was founded upon the rock. And then he says, whoever doesn't, um, does, you know, has, his house falls, his house collapses when the rains came, come and all that. That's the end of Matthew chapter 7, which brings us then right on into chapter 8. And in chapter 8, the very first thing that comes up is we read about a leper. So it actually says, uh, the Sermon on the Mount starts with, um, with the words saying, and seeing the multitude, he went up into the mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, they that mourn, hunger, thirst, all, all of those things, right? So Jesus goes up into the mountain. Everybody kind of sits down. Jesus begins to speak, gives his message, the Sermon on the Mount. When he's done, he's walking back down the mountain, and immediately up comes a leper. Now, a leper is a person that no one would, want to, would have wanted to have been in the Old Testament. A leper had a, um, was a contaminated person, and he had to let, or she, had to let everybody who was within touchable distance know that they were unclean. They actually had to go around and say that. If somebody got too close, they would have to say, unclean, unclean. You can imagine living with that kind of awful embarrassment, but there was nothing that could be done. And here comes this leper, and he comes up to Christ, and he says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus, without hesitation, says, I am willing. Be clean. And immediately... The leprosy is healed. And this is an incredible miracle because this is the worst thing that you can get in terms of a disease. And Jesus immediately exercises his healing authority, his healing power over this person's life who has come with a situation that nobody can help him with and, ha and, and has made his life miserable. And he comes to Jesus and he is healed. Then immediately following that um, story, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm saying there's, there's no narrative in between any of this. After Jesus heals the leopard, 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 no, he healed a leper. Um, then we read the story of the healing of the centurion's servant. So he enters into Capernaum, and when he goes to Capernaum, he is met by a Roman centurion. And the Roman centurion comes to him, and he says, Lord, I got a servant at home who is grievously ill. And Jesus says, oh, I come to heal him. And, and the, the, the centurion says something that absolutely blows 
the Lord's doors off, right? He says, oh, no, 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 you don't have to come to my house. All you have to do is speak the word. Because look, I get it. I understand. I'm a man who deals and trades in authority. And if I say to one of my servants, hey, get over there and do that, or to another one, get over there and take care of that, they do it. It's done. And so he says to the Lord, all you have to do is just give the word. Just speak the word, give the command, and this thing will be done. And it's really interesting that Jesus then um, is kind of, it's like he stops dead in his tracks. And he says, you know something? I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel, which is really a remarkable thing, that he recognizes that this servant's, this, this centurion's understanding of who he is and what his power is, and what can be done merely by Jesus speaking the word of authority over a situation, his understanding and recognition of that is paramount to or equal to what faith is all about. Faith is all about recognizing the invisible reality that is driving everything, and the invisible reality that is driving everything in our world is spiritual. The spiritual reality is driving everything else. And so anyway, the, the centurion comes and Jesus speaks the word. The guy goes home. His servant is healed. Then there's a third story that comes up. The third story, oh, it's Peter. Peter's mother-in-law gets healed. So um, he, Jesus is in Capernaum and he goes to Peter's house. And there, unfortunately, is Peter's mother-in-law. By the way, what does it mean that Peter has a mother-in-law? I thought Peter was the first pope. And, well, does anybody else see like a bit of uh, something that doesn't seem to quite fit there? I don't, I don't know. Anyway, anyway. And why would he want to heal his mother-in-law? Now, I'm only kidding. I'm only kidding. I'm only kidding. I like to use that when my mother-in-law is here. You know, a little, little dig. But anyway, uh, he, goes to, he goes to Peter's house and there... Uh, is his his mother-in-law, and his mother-in-law is sick, and so he touches her hand, according to what the Bible says, and and she gets back up, and she starts to serve. She starts to to, to perform her function in the household, right? And so we have so we have these three stories told in rapid succession, one after another, all of them about what healing, right? And so. Then we we read. This is what Matthew tags on the end of that passage. And this is where he imports <clears throat> um, the, the, the passage from Isaiah chapter 53. So it says there at the end of Matthew chapter 8, when evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed. And he cast out the spirits with a word. And he healed all who were sick, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, he himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. Okay, Jesus himself, now just in the same way that we believe and know that when Jesus died, he did not die for his own sins. Scripture says God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus didn't die for anything that he did wrong because he never did anything wrong. He died for our sins and what we have through his vicarious death on our behalf for sins, we have a complete assurance 
that our sins have been dealt with and they are paid for. The thing that is guaranteed to you and I by becoming believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, the guarantee is your sins, all of them, any one of them, the whole collection together, the ones you committed last week and the ones you might do a a year from now, all of them are dealt with and no longer are charged to your account because they were paid for by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. God just didn't decide, ah, I'd like Steve, he's a nice guy, sweep his sins under the... No, my sins were paid for by the Lord Jesus Christ. Are there still occasions of sin in my life? I just ask my wife sometime and you'll uh, you'll get the answer there. You know, all of us fail and fall short. It happens on a regular basis, not intentionally, and certainly it is something that we have to be continuously mindful of, to walk, like if if you remember when we were studying in the book of Ephesians, and he said, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called, in all meekness and lowliness and all longsuffering, right? So so what, what needs to occupy our attention is, I want, I want to, I want to get better. I want to get past this thing. I don't want this. I don't want whatever behavior this is or problem this is or a thing that I fall into again and again. I don't want it to control my life. It is not worthy of controlling my life. And it can be any number of things, all of which are destructive. So it's important to recognize those things. And then we just continue to seek the Lord. Seek the Lord for his help and for his strength and for his victory. Amen.